0: He says, whether Nebuchadnezzar continued in the same good mind that here he seems to have had, we're not told, nor does anything appear to the contrary that he did. And if so great a blasphemer and persecutor did find mercy, he was not the last. And if our charity may reach so far as to hope he did, we must admire free grace, by which this king lost his wits for a while, that he might save his soul. The king was a very bad man. As villains go, he was one of the worst. And yet he was still a candidate for grace. In today's study, we'll consider the apparent conversion of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Do you remember the story of the garden? Do you remember what happened there in the first part of Genesis? Well, as you might recall, Satan, he comes into the garden, comes into this habitation where Adam and Eve and the animals of field had dwelled. He approaches Eve, and he has a proposition. That proposition was this, that if she and Adam, by extension, if they were to ignore God's express command, if they were to do the one thing that he had told them not to do, if they were to eat from the tree at the center of the garden, that the reward for it would be great. That if they were to do this one thing at his nudging, if they were to do this one thing, the reward would be greater than they could possibly imagine. In fact, the reward had been obscured by God himself because the reward was this, that they would become like God. Remember, that's what the temptation was. They would become like God, knowing good and evil. Now, did Adam and Eve, did they know better than to listen to that? Yeah, I think so. Did they know this was a bad idea? I'm sure. And yet, it's amazing how effective that temptation was. You know, when Satan comes into the garden, it's not like he had to try a thousand different angles. It's not like he tried this and this and this. It's not like he had to lead them all different directions before they finally did something wrong, before they finally given the sin. All he had to do was dangle one prospect before them that they could become like God, knowing good and evil. All he had to do was dangle the prospect of becoming like God before them, and they said, give me the fruit. Give me the fruit. If you're God, what do you make of that? If you're God and you're watching this unfold, because God isn't just on hiatus or on vacation somewhere. If you're God and you're watching this unfold, what do you make of that? What do you make of the response? Now, you knew it was going to happen, and yet, what do you make of this? If you're God, you've made this gorgeous, beautiful, amazing garden. The utopia of utopias, at least here on earth. You've made this thing. You've given Adam and Eve dominion over it. Free reign to run the length and breadth of it. You've even come and, and walked and talked to them in the cool of the afternoon. What do you think? The moment that they break the one law you gave them, the one thing you told them not to do when they go and do it, in order that they might have some autonomy that's outside of your sphere. Now, if you're the one who formed the cosmos, if you're the one who, who named the stars of heaven, if you're the one who breathed life into these people to begin with, What do you make of this? That the very first opportunity, at least the first recorded opportunity we see here, that Adam and Eve, in essence, try to take your job, at least to take on your likeness, knowing good and evil. Whether it's Adam and Eve, whether it's Satan and the third angels that fell from heaven, whether it's a a Pharaoh who thinks he controls the world, whether it's a king, Nebuchadnezzar, who looks all around what he has done and, and says, this all exists for me, for my majesty. Created beings are continually trying to put the creator on the shelf and elevate themselves. If not above him, at least alongside him. Is that not the way it's been since the beginning? Time and time and time again, with its towers of Babel, gold statues on the plain of Dura, what have you. What's your response to this? Because it continues to happen to this very day. What's your response to that? Now, most of the time, we can't pretend to know the mind of God. His ways are above our ways as far as the heavens are above the earth. His thoughts are above our ways as far as the heavens are above the earth. So we can't most of the time pretend to know what's in the mind of God. And yet on this issue, I think we can, because he's told us what he thinks about these men. He's told us what he thinks about when people, fallen, created beings, try to take on the authority and the clout and the honor and the majesty of the Creator. He's told us what he thinks about this. And to put it bluntly, he doesn't like it. He doesn't respond well to this. God does not like pride. He does not like arrogance, especially when it comes from fallen men and women like you and I. He didn't care for it from Satan either. He certainly doesn't care for it from us. He doesn't like it when we attempt to rob him of his glory. And he doesn't just sit by when that happens either. King Nebuchadnezzar, his his whole walk in life was to put himself, if not on par with God, then above him. Because of that, multiple times, up to four times, depending on on how you interpret certain phrasings, four times just in this one chapter, the Bible tells King Nebuchadnezzar that he's going to undergo a season of discipline until you realize, until you know, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. Until you're put in your place, you're going to undergo the season of discipline. There is a God, Nebuchadnezzar, you're not him. Theology goes, that's kind of rock bottom, theology 101. There is a God, you aren't him. If Adam and Eve had grasped theology 101, they might have had some some measure of defense against the temptation. However, man's problem, the problem that you and I have, is that we all want to displace God in some way, shape, or form. If you think you aren't capable of doing this, what do you think sin is? Sin is displacing God's will, God's wants, God's decree, his desires for us and saying, I know better. Sin, in essence, is saying I am going to carve out autonomy, maybe not across the whole scope of the created realm, but I will carve out autonomy across this one decision. That's what sin is. God hates it. How many sins did it take before God came on the scene and and dealt with mankind? One. The wages of sin is death. Not plural, but singular. The wages of sin is death. Sin is a rejection of his will in favor of our own. God doesn't like it. He's routinely dealt with that. We're going to see that in today's reading. All right, if you would, I'm going to read verses 28 through 30, and then we're just going to work our way through the balance of the chapter. Verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Bum, bum, bum. There's some drama in this. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. And the king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Has not all that I have done, all that I've created, all that I've formed, all that I've built, does it not exist to glorify me? That's the statement that he's making. Now, as we said earlier, about 12 months before these words came tumbling out of the king's mouth, about 12 months before the events in today's reading, the king had a dream. And it was a dream that, once again, his wise men and soothsayers and and sorcerers and all all the eggheads he had in Babylon combined could not interpret. So he called Daniel in to assist him. And Daniel's interpretation, which we talked about at greater length last week, it boiled down to this prognosis for Nebuchadnezzar. It said, oh, king, you're going to be cut down. The tree in your dream, the mighty tree, the giant tree, the tree with leaves, the tree with branches, the tree that's bigger than anything else around it, the tree that goes up to heaven, you're the tree, and the tree's going down. Remember, that was what we talked about last week. It's going to be nothing more than a stump. And the only hope that the king had to forestall that outcome was to follow Daniel's instructions when he told the king, O king, break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities, by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps, perhaps there may be at least a lengthening of your prosperity, a lengthening of your reign before God comes in. King, change your ways, do something different. What you're doing isn't working. God's coming for you. Repent. Change your mind. Be righteous. Give to the poor. Do things you haven't been doing. And there may be at least a lengthening. Of the time before God comes calling. Well, in verses 28 through 29, in today's text, we see a fast forward. In this entire year, God is patient. God is patient with us, even when we're out like the prodigal son, out in the foreign land. God is patient for us. He longs for us to come back to himself. A year goes by. And do we find, at the end of that year, here in verses 28 through 30, that the king has got with the program? When we come to this, do we find, wow, the king, he really listened to Daniel. That was a silver bullet sermon that preacher, that prophet Daniel, gave him. Oh, that cut to the heart of the king. Wow, what a change. Is that what we find? Well, no. He's not acting righteously. He's not taking care of the poor. He's not living in any sort of humble, repentant way in in the least. He didn't become you know, nice nice Nebuchadnezzar, the the sweet king of Babylon, nothing like that. Instead, we see a king who, who fell more in love with himself than he was the year previous. see a king who's just walking around his kingdom. You can imagine his chest out and he's strutting and maybe the sun is hitting the spires the right way, the grass and such, the flowers are all glistening and blooming and the like. And he just stands back and he's enraptured, really with himself, as it's reflected by the world around him. He says, oh, look at this. Look at what I have done. Is this not great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power? I did it through my own strength, my own virtue, and for the honor of my majesty. How arrogant this king is in the face of all that Daniel has told him across multiple dreams, really. How arrogant this guy is. He's taking credit, glory, and honor for accomplishing something that had been given to him by God. Elsewhere in Scripture it says, I've raised you up, O Nebuchadnezzar. Here he says, I did it myself. What is the Sinatra song? I did it my way? That's the mantra. That's the chorus of, of Nebuchadnezzar here. Fundamentally, this guy, he's like the guy who thinks that there is a universe, he's the center of it. And to the degree God is there, or gods in his case, because he was polytheist, to the degree God, gods, what have you, are there at all, they're kind of in orbit somewhere around him. Satellites in orbit of the king. They're kind of like a, a divine butler's maybe, coming and clean up messes. Divine genies, they can do cool stuff. That's the place he had for God and his worldview. But it wasn't going to fly with God. God does not suffer fools. Let's look at verses 31-33. through Now while the word was still in the king's mouth, meaning the syllables are tumbling out, while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed. The kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from man, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. Contrast that to what the king had just said. Until you know, until you get this straight, the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whoever he chooses. And that very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. That's what prophecy does when it comes from a true prophet. It's fulfilled. It was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men. He ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. He had the look, the smell of an animal. This great and mighty king. Look what he became. just a snap of the fingers, a word from God. Who do you think really sits on the throne? It's not Nebuchadnezzar. Now, before the king had even finished speaking, as we just said, while his smug and and arrogant words were were still on his lips, God stopped him, stopped him in his tracks. Most specifically, he stopped him in this way. A voice comes from heaven saying, your kingdom's gone. It's over, O king. Your kingdom has been taken from you. He didn't even have the power to retain that which was his, let alone to build up anything of his own strength. He couldn't even hold on to what he had. The moment God speaks, his kingdom is gone. It's been taken from him. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar, let's stop and ask for a minute. Why now? If we stand back and go, okay, the story of Nebuchadnezzar is a story of kind of a bad guy. He'd done all sorts of just terrible things. This was a, a butcher of the nations. He enslaved people. He killed people. He threw people in, into fiery furnaces. He had his own wives been torn from limb to limb. This is a bad guy. He'd done lots of bad things. So the question is, why now? I mean, given all that he'd done, why this interval? What was so egregious about this that caused God to act? We should think about that, because if what had just happened, the words that came out of Nebuchadnezzar's lips at this moment, were the straw that broke the camel's back, then there must be something especially egregious about it, rather than just a little boasting or what have you. We might call it smack talk in our area. This is something more than that. In verse 31, he had crossed the line. And I think one way to describe that line is this. This man had tried to rob God. Every bit as much as if he was to go into the temple, he had tried to rob God of his glory. That will only seem like a small thing to you and I if we have a low view of God's glory. We'll only go, well, so what? If we have a low view of what God's glory is. This man tried to rob God of his glory. Is this not Babylon that exists for the honor of my majesty? The king was saying that the created realm around me Exists for the glory and benefit of a created being and not the Creator. This was his heir. Now, here's the thing. God had heard those words before. God had heard virtually the same boasting before. From a particularly serpentine subject. Isaiah 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Lucifer, serpent, devil, Satan, by any name, he had elevated himself. In word and deed, he had attempted to elevate himself alongside God. He has said in his heart, I will be like the Most High. The words of Nebuchadnezzar that we read here, they're echoes of that. They're echoes of that. For that matter, they echo the temptation in the garden. Remember what the temptation was? You will be like God. God had heard this time and time and time again from mankind. When they built the Tower of Babel, there's this idea they could reach up in the heavens. Mankind always thinks we can be like God or at least have autonomy in our actions, sovereignty over at least a corner of the world around us. Adam and Eve believed it. The devil believed it. The demons, a third, the third, that fell believed it. Pharaoh believed it. Nebuchadnezzar believed it. But it weren't so. It weren't so. His words, Nebuchadnezzar's words, by saying that everything around me exists for my glory, the glory is due to only one. To claim it for ourselves is to rob it from him, at least to try to. You know, I could tell you with certainty, it would be better, hypothetically speaking. In the Old Testament, it would have been better to try to go into the temple and rob a golden lampstand than to try to rob the glory of God. Taking God's gold would be far less egregious, I would speculate, than trying to take his glory. The proof of that is that God, uh, he didn't break Nebuchadnezzar over any other sin that the guy had done. He'd, he'd stolen, he'd killed, he'd slaughtered, he'd butchered, he'd enslaved God's own people. And he had pilfered from the temple. He had done all that, and yet God had restrained his hand. But the moment that the king exalted himself above God, God acted. God dealt with it. Because again, he'd heard this before. He knew what this was, and he knew it's at the root of every single sin. This idea that we can become, if not quite like God, at the very least autonomous in our dealing, and our choices. And we'll carve out some corner of the kingdom that is ours and not his. That transgression, that concept, that idea, that presupposition, that philosophy that the king had, the minute he brought it to words, the minute he stated it, the minute he described what he was thinking in his heart, God intervened mid-sentence. But then what? What happened next? It wasn't that he just stopped him. In that moment, a couple other things happened. First of all, his kingdom was taken. God said, you're done, at least for now, you're done, kingdom, it's gone. I give it to who I want, I can take it back to, is what we see here. So he takes the king. Secondly, what happens is the king lost his mind. There's a lot of ways you could describe it. There's a lot of diagnosis you could attribute to this. But in essence, in the vernacular, boils down to this. He lost his mind. He lost the capacity that he had previously had for rational thought. And so he began to act like what? Like an animal. An unreasoning animal. Without even the ability to care for himself, his body. So he got shaggy and gross and his nails got long. He got disgusting, long hair, long nails. It sounds pretty terrible. As punishments go, I, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. But what's, what's interesting, though, as bad as that would be, that's pretty rough. I mean, if you go from the king's estate where he's got all the finery, the fine robes, the fine dress, all the gold, all the riches, all these different things, and the next minute your face is in the dirt, that's discipline. However, what's amazing to me is that God didn't just smite him. That God didn't just intervene right then and there and just strike him down. Think about some of the other villains of Scripture. Do you remember Goliath? Well, he got pretty proud, too. Remember, he's, off, he's, he's blaspheming against the God of these silly Israelites. He's blaspheming. David says, oh, no, you didn't. David rolls on in and says, I don't care if anyone else is going to stand up for the glory of God here, but I will. Picks up the stones, kills him with a single one to the head. Goliath was brought down. Goliath was dealt with. And yet God was patient. God was patient with Nebuchadnezzar. And he sends him into what you might call a, a wilderness experience. Now, in Scripture, that might resonate with some other stories that come to mind. Sometimes God judges. Jezebel eaten by dogs, Herod Agrippa eaten by worms. Sometimes when God wants to, he can, he can judge. He can deal with people. And yet, sometimes, particularly with those that he's pursuing, sometimes he'll, he'll put them in timeout for a season. In the old testament context, this usually involved the wilderness. Others had spent time there. You know, Moses, he spent time in Pharaoh's house as a younger man. He had some some pride issues, but he went out to Midian and he left Midian old and humbled. Old and humbled and useful at this point. God used Moses' time in the wilderness. Forty years, man, tending your father in law's sheep for decades sounds pretty miserable to me, and yet God used it. He used it to refine, to prepare him for the future ministry. The entire nation of Israel spent 40 years in in the wilderness. They entered into it proud and rebellious. They they left it humbled, eager for the promised land. Even the Apostle Paul had a wilderness time. He had, of course, in the past, when he was has been proud and arrogant. Before he was really ready for ministry, God put him in the wilderness for periods of three years, in the uh, wilderness of Arabia. And In that time, God took his pharisaical character, his viewpoints, his understanding, and, and he humbled him. And he made him ready for the ministry that awaited. The point is sometimes wilderness experiences exist when God is is attempting to remake, humble, bring us to repentance. Typically, Scripture Scripture, you only see that to those that he's pursuing. The story of Jacob and Esau, you know what the proof is that God loved Jacob? He pursued him. day of his life, God almost beat him within an inch of his life sometimes, but he pursued Jacob. Jacob the scoundrel, Jacob the one who steals his brother's birthright. God pursued him. And in time, Jacob was, of course, much more humbled, much more repentant, much more stronger in faith, much more used. Are you being pursued by God? Maybe discipline is part of that process. Maybe you're in a wilderness. Those of us who have some mileage on, on the tires, so to speak, maybe can look back and say, I know a season when God pursued me, and he pursued me through discipline, pursued me by parking me in a wilderness. And for a long season of my life, things were stagnant. Some of us, that may be the case right now. But it's in those seasons that God is, it would seem, most at work to refine us and, and to make us. And to make us more useful, well, for what does it come? Nebuchadnezzar would spend what we believe to be seven years in this lowly estate. I don't know what God was doing with him, but at the very least, we can say that he was being humbled. Let's look now and see the fruits of that humility in verses 34 and 35. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain His hand or say, what have you done? What a change this is. We'll get to the change in a moment, but at the very least, the phrasing is so much different from what things he said earlier. Remember what he told Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they wouldn't bow down before the golden idol that looked a lot like him? Remember what he told them? He says, who is the God that can rescue you from my hand? In his pride, in his strength, in his sense that he was the center of the universe, he looked at these men and he said, there's nothing, no force on this earth, no force above this earth that can overrule mine. There is no God that can save you from my hand if I can sign you, condemn you to those flames. How would that work out? But in any case, at one point he said, there's no God that can save you. And here, at the the close of his statements, he says, no one can restrain this God's hand or say to him, what have you done? The king and his pride is nowhere to be seen in these verses. He's not the central figure of these statements at all. So after the appointed amount of time had gone by, in verse 34, the king's understanding returned to him. Let me ask you, if you have your Bibles open, what event preceded the returning of his understanding? Just look at the text. If something happened, Well, specifically in verse 34, it says this. It says that he lifted his eyes into heaven. He lifted his eyes into heaven unto the God who is there. At that moment, his understanding returned. One moment his his mind, his being. It's like an animal. He's bent over. His hair is matted with grass and grime. His eyes are focused on dirt, because that's what most animals are looking at. But then, for reasons that aren't explained here, and perhaps persuaded by the Spirit to do so, he inclines his eyes upward, inclines his eyes up towards heaven. And in that moment, his understanding returned. In that moment, his understanding returned, and his nature went from that of a beast to that of a man. From that of a beast to that of a man. And it would appear that his immediate response from having undergone this change to his nature was that he was enabled and persuaded to raise the God of heaven. Now, I might be mistaken. And I will not say this dogmatically, but the whole description that we see in these verses sounds to me a lot like a a theological term that we call regeneration. Regeneration is the theological term for when one who is dead in their sins and trespasses becomes born again. Remember what we said in the past? These are not just hallmark phrases. Hallmark phrases, being born again, is not the same thing as deciding for Christ or inviting Christ into your heart and the like. Those words are nowhere in Scripture. Being born again involves a change to your ontology, a change to your very nature. You're enabled and persuaded to do that which you previously not only would not do, but could not do. Regeneration is a term when God takes a deadened heart, breathes into it new life. It involves a radical change. And the result of that change time and time again in people just like you and I is that we go from a a position of enmity with God, elevating ourselves to the level of God, at least in our heart and mind if nowhere else, to turning to God, praising Him something that was not natural to the old man. One minute we're dead in our sins and trespasses, the next minute we're born again. One minute we're blind, the next minute we see. One minute we have hearts of stone, the next minute we have hearts of flesh. These are Scripture's own words to describe a process of significant, radical, ontological change. Not just a change of our opinion about God, but a change in our ability to recognize Him for who He is. That is what appears to have occurred here. In Daniel 4, the king is he's a little more than an animal. His face is down into the grime and dirt, which is really, we're fallen humanity. That's apropos for where we all were before God changed our hearts, changed our minds, or our face was focused down to the grime and the dirt. That's what we liked. That's what we wallowed in. But then here, at least, we see this change. One minute, the king is a little more than an animal. His face is down into the grime. The next minute, his eyes are focused on heaven above. And at that moment, he received his understanding which I'm sure is a word that is filled with more than simply a cognitive ability. In the eyes of many commentators in the Reformed world and outside of the Reformed world, this event is seen to mark the regeneration of this foreign king. Now, is is there any proof of that? Is there any corollary evidence to suggest that's what happened here? Well, in my experience, after one is regenerated, you know what usually comes next in reasonably short order? Usually there's a profession. Well, let's just see if we see any of that in the verses that we close. Let's look at verses 36 through 37. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. God lifted him up. He can break us down. He can lift us up. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven and all whose works are truth, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. You know, in chapters 1 through 4, in chapters 1 through 4 of the book of Daniel, the primary figure is not Daniel. The book is called the book of Daniel, but at least in the first four chapters, the main figure is not Daniel. And you know what? It's not Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego, or any of the other exiles either. The main figure in the first four chapters is this king, is Nebuchadnezzar. As said last week, the Bible allocates more ink, so to speak, more ink and parchment and papyrus and the like, more of that to Nebuchadnezzar than really to most of Christ's own apostles. And what it tells us, in all its, its ink and in all its words, what it tells about Nebuchadnezzar is that he was, I believe this is past tense, he was a fallen, depraved, and wicked man, who God, for reasons that are God's alone, determined to rescue, determined to pursue he went to incredible lengths in that pursuit. incredible length that is reasonable to conclude had a positive outcome. God repeatedly revealed himself to the king. And God revealed himself to Pharaoh too, but not in the personal nature we see here. To this king, to this pagan king, God sent him a prophet. And not only did he send him a prophet, he sent him a friend. Because really that's how Daniel is really depicted here by the end of chapter 4. A counselor. Someone who really cared about the king. He sent him Daniel. Then he he gave his king multiple dreams and visions. Not just one, but more than one. Dreams and visions. He also gave him one of the greatest sights of them all. Remember in the fiery furnace? The king throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. And then the king, as he's wiping his hands with glee over the, the victory he's won over those who dared to defy him, he looks into the furnace and he's startled because he sees not one, not two, not three, but four. And he looks at that fourth one. Remember what He said, at least in the New King James. In the King James, he looks at one and he says, and the fourth one is like the Son of God. God gave him Daniel, prophet. God gave him visions. God gave him a Christophany, theophany, a visible manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ. He gave him these things. He, even in here in chapter 4, he gives him the voice from heaven, even if it's a voice of discipline. Regularly, consistently, God intervened in the heart and life of this king. He revealed himself to this king repeatedly. Why? Why did he bother? I believe it was to save him. I believe God revealed himself to this, this lost and fallen king in the same way that he revealed himself to Tarsus. Because sometimes God likes to demonstrate that one of the greatest miracles is taking one of the greatest villains and changing his heart. And demonstrating it to people far and wide that there's no one beyond grace. There's no one who's not a candidate for grace. If Tarsus, if King Nebuchadnezzar could be saved, what people in your life that you've already written off are still candidates for grace today. Generally speaking, when a villain shows up in the pages of Scripture, God deals with him quick or decisively. Again, we talked about Goliath, we talked about Herod Agrippa, we talked about Jezebel, Ahab. When those scoundrels went down, they went down hard. There was no sign God pursued them, He just judged them, He just dealt with them. But even though the God had plenty of cause to judge Nebuchadnezzar, even though He had plenty of reasons to lower the hammer, He shows grace at every interval. And that grace resulted, for what it's worth, it resulted in one of the greatest professions in the entire book. You reread chapter 4, the text of the start and the text of the end. It's one of the greatest professions in the entire book. Did Nebuchadnezzar continue to repent and believe? Well, we don't know that for certain. Again, I'm not saying it dogmatically, but listen to the way Matthew Henry, listen to the way Matthew Henry answers that question. He says, "...whether Nebuchadnezzar continued in the same good mind that here he seems to have had, we're not told, nor does anything appear to the contrary that he did." And if so great a blasphemer and persecutor did find mercy, he was not the last. And if our charity may reach so far as to hope he did, we must admire free grace by which this king lost his wits for a while that he might save his soul. He lost his wits for a while that he might save his soul. Personally, I think Nebuchadnezzar is in heaven now, having already cast his crown at the feet of King Jesus. Does that matter when you and I get to heaven, there's going to be a lot of people who have murdered, stolen, who were once villains, who God entered in for reasons that are his alone or for his glory alone. You redeem them. You purchase them back. What does it tell us when villains walk through the the gate of heaven? What does that tell us? Among other things, it tells us that heaven is not reserved for those who have worked their way there. That can't be the entrance exam. That can't be the way it works based on stories like this. It tells us that grace is central. And also, as I said before, it tells us that there's no one who's outside of that. There's no one who's not a candidate for grace. If God can redeem someone like Nebuchadnezzar, who can't he? Who can't he? All right, with our remaining moment here, I want to return to something that the king said at the very end of today's chapter. Remember, he said this. He says, those who walk in pride, God, he is able to put down. Now, as we've talked about for several weeks, King Nebuchadnezzar experienced that firsthand. He knew what he was talking about. King knew something about walking in pride. We saw that at the outset of today's passage, and he also knew something about being put down. He could speak with great experience and authority on this subject. But he didn't stay down. Fortunately, in God's grace, in God's time, he was raised back up. In your own walk, in your own walk, you may be in a season of pride. In your own walk, even as a Christian, we can enter into seasons where we believe God's there, we believe what Jesus did on the cross, and we believe we need it, and we even accept it, and we nod our heads at all the right things that the pastor says. We can be in that estate and yet live very prideful lives that keep God at a distance, keep God to the periphery. Remember that picture of God in orbit of us rather than holding our hand, rather than leading us? That can often be where we're at. So often in our Christian walk, we're walking and we're looking over our shoulder to make sure God's cleaning up our message. This is pride. This is arrogance. We may be leaning too much on our understanding this day, this week. We may be keeping God behind a pane of glass that says an emergency break. If so, that's time to stop. There is God. We're not Him. It's not a good thing to trust in our own strength not a good thing to trust in our own authority, however great or small it may be. This week in decisions, great and small, you and I, we need to stop looking inward if that's what we're doing. Stop trusting in self to be the measure of, of the reality around us. Incline ourselves more towards prayer, more towards trust, more towards faith. Stop looking side to side. Stop looking in the mirror. Stop looking horizontal. And start looking up. That our reason, if it is departed, even for a season, might return to us. That we might live righteously. I lift up my eyes to the heavens, for where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. Let's pray. In today's study, we've gone verse by verse through Scripture. If this sort of expositional preaching is what you're looking for, then please subscribe to this podcast and check back tomorrow for another verse by verse study of God's Word.